<laughs> Kia ora and welcome to the Mary Birth Podcast. I am your host, Rick Ring King, and it is sadly a solo session this week. As Epsilon cannot be with us. But do not fret, Rick Ring King is here. I am here to entertain you all this fine morning, noon, evening. Anyway, today I will be finally be able to talk about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 that's in cinemas everywhere in every major format including IMAX we'll also be talking about the latest episodes of Warrior and Secret Invasion now streaming respectively on Neon and Disney Plus also diving into the drastic changes in the box office Hollywood is slowly declining in the box office as movies are becoming more and more expensive we will also discuss the current issues that are plaguing Hollywood and our support of the WGA slash SAG strikes that are currently happening right now. At the very end, there is a big update that I would love to talk about that furthers this podcast even more. Enough said, let's dive into the mind of one Ethan Hunt and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part Wow, what a film, what a film, actually talking about the film, I gotta talk about the movie star of this movie, one Tom Cruise, age 61, I think our last episode he just turned 61, wow, wow, he and I think a lot of people have been saying is the last movie star in Hollywood. He loves cinema. He is the reason why multiplexes are always filling up every time his movies come out. He always loves seeing fans. Just love cinema, love movies. It's always been about the movies. It's always been about entertaining us. He loves us but transparent way of loving us is through acting and I think he's going to be acting for a very very long time and I can't wait to see where Tom Cruise goes after Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2 he is truly a legend in the scene and man speaking of something legendary he always does it's his stunts. <laughs> Throughout the years, he's hung from planes, he's climbed the Burj Khalifa, he's held his breath for five plus minutes in a hydrocollider, he's fallen multiple feet in the air and when they filmed here in New Zealand for Fallout, um, hanging from a helicopter. He does these insane things and he continues to do them. And this movie... <laughs> He jumps off cliffs, he goes on top of a train at 60 miles per hour, he's one-handed handcuffed next to his co-host Hayley Atwell, no stunt team, driving a, uh, I think it was a Fiat, around Rome, (laughs) kind of the same location as Fast 10, doing stuff like this, Um, a very confined, compromising, very claustrophobic uh, sequence with him and Pom Clementiev. And just these insane things he does. And obviously his his crazy run. But these stunts... (laughs) I just want to know what they'll do with the next movie. Because this is some insanity. And on another level. And I think the big stunt that has been promoting this film the most, and it's not even the best stunt in the film, I think it's just there. It's the cliff jump. And it's, they built this massive entire ramp. And Tom Cruise went through months of training. He's like, no, this is the first thing we do. We're going to get the most death-defying stunt over and done with. We're just going to do this. 
nine different takes of him jumping. I can hold on a little bit longer, don't worry. Multiple bikes probably destroyed. <laughs> but again, this is a million dollar franchise. Uh, uh, yeah? No, a billion dollar franchise. Sorry. Let me reiterate that. But a million dollar project that this is. Um, but yeah, the stunts keep getting bigger and bigger. I will go on to my favorite stunt, which is the train sequence, uh, which is just insanity. But where they go from here on, it's insane. Uh, there are rumors that Tom Cruise could do a movie in space. And I wouldn't be surprised if something happens in space in the next movie. But man, there's got to be clearances and everything. Make sure Tom Cruise is safe, but, but, but this is Tom Cruise. If he wants to go out, he'll do it in space. <laughs> this is, he, he is the movie star. Anyway, Mission Impossible franchise has been going on since Mission Impossible 1. And it's been such an ever-long lasting um, franchise that continues to get better and better and better. Um, and the last installment was back in 2018. Um, with Fallout, and I think, to me personally, it's my favorite Mission Impossible. But this film is not that far behind, because looking at everything from MI1 to Ghost Protocol to Rogue Nation to Fallout to now Dead Reckoning Part 1, which I think we're in a renaissance of part parts now. As it feels like the early 2010s, where we had Breaking Dawn Part 1 and Part 2, Deathly Hallows Part 1 and Part 2, Mockingjay Part 1 and Part 2, we're, we're back! Especially with movies like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which was prominently called Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1, and then the sequel would be Across the Spider-Verse Part 2, but now it's changed to Beyond the Spider-Verse. And then this movie, Day Reckoning Part 1, and then next year, Day Reckoning Part 2. But yes, looking throughout the years of Mission Impossible, there is a big chance that this movie will be a cult classic within the fans. <sighs> but there is something looming, something imminent. It's called Barbenheimer. <laughs> this week sees the release of. Barbie and Oppenheimer, giving Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 a week in IMAX since, well, Oppenheimer in New Zealand. We, we have two IMAX theatres, I have not seen the other, but our first and was our only IMAX theatre here in Queen Street, Auckland. Um, a proper one, a proper IMAX theatre. As being taken over by Oppenheimer. There are no regular cinemas screening anything that all goes to Barbie. Um, but yes, Oppenheimer has taken every single IMAX screening session over here and in Queensgate, Wellington, which is insane. And I feel kind of bad because Mission Impossible Directly Part 1 is beautiful in IMAX. It doesn't expand the expert ratio, it's not 70mm or anything, but the fact that we get to see something glorious as they're reckoning part one on, on the biggest screen, that's that's more than enough. And again, with the imminent arrival of those two films, Mission Possible Dead Reckoning may drop a lot at the box office but we'll get to the box office but again that remember that that's in the front of my mind that barbenheimer is, is imminent but let's get down to the review i start out with the positives there are a lot of positives but i'll do the major positives the action I, I don't think you can ever fault this movie for action. It is the second best action film this year. I love Extraction 2. But Extraction 2 is just behind us. John Wick Chapter 4 is definitely the best action film this year. 
But Mission Impossible Day Reckoning Part 1 is it just feels like a homage to a bunch of different action genres and f- and, and different action films. It's it's beautiful. It's a it's a myriad of of love and care for this genre with these massive stunts, these massive choreographed fight scenes and I did bring it up it was a close um, close quarters very hand-to-hand combat claustrophobic space um, sequence in Rome between um, Ethan and Pon Clemente's character of Paris uh, Paris and it, it was incredibly shot and we've seen um, we've seen action set pieces like this before in different movies but the way it, it feels so enclosed I don't remember if there was any music behind uh, as a backing track but the the use of Foley in this movie just like something like Transformers Rise of the Beast the Foley in this movie is impeccable something like that um, is insane because it crosscuts between multiple action set pieces so there's this uh, ticking time bomb and um, Ethan has to get here but he's being directed here by uh, by the entity that's what it's called the main bad guy of the movie is AI it's artificial intelligence that has been stuck in the middle of a, a ocean <laughs> I don't in Russia Probably because it was a Soviet ship at the very beginning and the opening titles, uh, opening titles, opening uh, credits of the movie. The action set pieces, there there were some um, moments of action and, and thrills that is incredible. And the airport sequence, amazing because there were multiple different scenarios happening. Um, it was a great like maiden maiden heaven Jojo reference but literally how it's shot how it's edited how it's how it's cut together it's a very much an action set piece it's choreographed and it's beautiful and then we have something like the the Rome action sequence which is just a chase sequence which has been done multiple times in this franchise but it gets better and better and better and then the big final mama of a of an action sequence Issa Morales is Gabriel and Tom Cruise is Ethan Hunt on top of a fucking train <laughs> whoa <laughs> uh, and, and this is the big stunt that I was talking about at the beginning that was my favorite and they made their own train that works they made their own carriages inside that's their own different personalities made for the final sequence of the film but also the fact that you got Tom Cruise and Issa Moares on on top of a train moving train at 60 miles per hour whoa <laughs> um i i would i would see a lot of people say that's cg because the backgrounds look blurry that is all shot on camera and whoa <laughs> uh it's it, it was such a death defying stunt along the lines of when ethan hunt was holding onto cargo bay doors and uh, at, at the beginning of rogue nation it was incredible i just want to see wow again <laughs> it's I, that's why I would say I feel bad that this movie isn't in IMAX for another week so people can go watch it in, in such a massive format for, for such a death defying stunt like that or the cliff jump or the Rome sequence it's amazing speaking of amazing the cinematography in this movie wow <laughs> I'm back with the wows uh, there's some beautiful shots there's there's a sequence at the beginning of the movie where Ethan is um, is trying to find someone in the desert and this 
incredible sandstorms happening while there's a shootout and the way it's shot feels so authentic yet feels so modern. There's no way you could shoot that scene any better and but all in camera in shot is amazing and gives props to the DOP director of photography for such beautiful camera work along with the crew it's such a stunning film <laughs> it's it's a feast feast for the eyes including with the stunning Lorne Bolf Lorne Bolf actually got attached to this film through Fallout he did the orchestral and the OST the original soundtrack for Fallout and to me personally I think Lorne Bolf is the modern day Hans Zimmer which is funny enough because he was Hans Zimmer's student <laughs> but Lorne Belf has made incredible soundtracks and a lot of soundtracks when I mean a lot I mean a lot in recent time and this soundtrack wow <laughs> there's a lot of wow with a positive side it's it's beautiful it's rousing in this movie, it's actually extended, and it's actually a rising action. <laughs> the actual theme of the opening titles has a direct structure of its own, but there's constant to it. It's a it's a drum roll. It's like a marching band behind it. But Law and Bob's incredible intensity, and when his music is used, there's sometimes where the music just stops. Completely. And it gives you time to breathe. And then there were times where it needs to be as like rousing and cost, uh, like chaotic and create a crescendo in such a, a set piece. But sometimes there's these massive set pieces where there's no music at all. And that's the train sequence at the very end. There's no music until. Ethan leaves the train. Um, but yeah, it's Lorne Balve is the modern day Hans Zimmer, and it's taught well by him. And I think, and I can't wait to hear him finish it off with Derek Lee Part Two. Now, we've talked a lot about Tom Cruise. He is the last movie star in Hollywood. But his connection with Hayley Atwell in this film. And I think it's 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 Hayley Atwell um, now coming into the leading lady role of these films. And she, she fits it perfectly. It's actually a, a chaotic good and a chaotic evil kind of scenario between her and Tom. And they really... They're both charismatic themselves. How Haley um, reciprocates the energy that Tom gives her, and vice versa, is incredible. Their banter is—it's—it's uh, it's, it's very endearing and hilarious. Um, the way they switch roles in that little fiat um, in Rome is. You just need to see it. Um, they handcuff to each other um, because she's a thief, and they're trying to find this key, actually two halves of a key that create a full key, and um, to to connect with this thing called the entity, which we talked about AI. But yeah, their their connection on screen and how the characters are written are, are great, and I think that a lot of people may may like her as a leading lady or, or some people may think that uh, they're kind of pushing Rebecca Ferguson now which we'll get to but um, yeah those two great connection and I think they balance each other out incredibly well now onto the negatives there's one thing that I always look for and this is usually done with a discussion sequence or a talking sequence between characters over the shorter shots wide shots whatever there's one rule you cannot break i 
consider this a nitpick because not many people will understand this. It's called the 180 rule. The rule of 180 is basically very simple. You can't have you have this line in the middle, okay, and you cannot pass it at all. So if you have a camera, if, let me just draw this in your head. There's a line going horizontally. There's a camera on the right side, and then there's a camera on the left side, but on the same side behind the line. That's fine. So the camera is facing towards one actor, the other camera facing towards the other. The reason why we don't cross the 180 line is because if we had the camera on the right facing character one, and then we have this camera that would be on camera two, uh, would be on character two. Next to camera, uh, character one, it's the camera's gonna show on the other camera. Both cameras are gonna show on each other. That's why we do not cross this 180 line. This movie has a talking sequence between Ethan Hunt and Kittredge, who returns from. I think the last movie he was in was MI3 or Ghost Protocol. I do not remember. But he was pivotal in MI1. But there's this sequence where I think they're using singular cameras, where they're using camera one on character one, which would be Kittredge, and then using that camera one and then sliding over to the other side mid talking and then doing exactly the same with Ethan Hunt. Uh, either that's intentional. There's like conflict or it's messy, but that took me out of the movie instantly. I think I heard Greg from the Rear Rejects talk about, oh, was it intentional or was it just messy editing or messy camera work? And then I watched the movie go, oh, they definitely broke the rule of 180 multiple times during that scene, but I didn't see it afterwards. Every other scene was behind the line, it respected the rule, there was a reason. But I, either Christopher McQuarrie or the DIP come out and say, oh, it's not truly breaking the rule of 180 because we're using a singular camera. I don't know. Um, just the uh, film school in me <laughs> going crazy. But who knows? There may be an intentional reason that it could be on the Blu-ray. And special features, but that that was one nitpick, and I didn't know whether it was intentional or it was just messy. Um, but again, Blu-ray special features behind the scenes. But that was negative number one, which was more of a nitpick because it's not really you know universal. Not many people will understand. Um, if you do, incredible, you'll understand. Now. The second one would be, there's too much exposition, way too much. Um, we understand this key, we understand the AI, we understand these characters, we've known Ethan Hunt and everyone for for decades. Yet you wanna kind of baby food spoon feed us information, um, like we don't know. Ooh, here's the key. Do you want to know what the key does? It unlocks an AI. And you're like, oh, okay. That's the beginning of the movie, right? <laughs> they visually tell you. Bitch, I, I know what the key does. And this is 15 minutes after it's shown visually. They're, they're purposely doing this. I don't know whether it was intentional. <laughs> Again, like the 180 rule. Is it intentional or not? But yeah. They, they tell us too much. Again, show us. <laughs> show us. We should know. We should connect the dots. We know these characters were so long that we know how they would react, how they would blah blah blah. That was the one thing in the writing room that drastically was downgraded from Fallout. Fallout didn't cookie cutter anything towards oh 
Here's the bomb. It's a nuclear bomb. Oh, Tom Cruise's, uh, Ethan Hunter's wife is here. Oh, did you know where she was? No. <laughs> oh, here's everything else. <sighs> this movie does that, and it does that, and, and for me personally, I think other people may enjoy it, may not. Uh, distastefully. I think they overdo it. They think you're stupid. And that's something that Mission Impossible strives away. Mission Impossible has only done it like once or twice. But this, that was like the first three movies. Probably. Um, but yeah. Um, the third. Sadly. We'll probably get to know more of, of these characters. Of what? One that we actually know a lot about. Um, it's it's Issei Morales and Rebecca Ferguson. Their characters respectively. Issei Morales uh, was introduced as a character that came from Ethan's past. Um, and I talked about it. It's the reason why Ethan is who he was in the first movie. Um, I didn't care for it. I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Like, if... I, the way they did it for Fast 10 was actually pretty cool. Um, I have, again, Epsilon and I have yet to watch that, but the way it's done in in the trailer, I went, oh yeah, that's a, that's a possibility. That could definitely happen. But with this movie, he's just there. Yeah, his character... Uh, it's okay. I I am. Um, I don't like the fact that the entity he was the main embodiment of the entity in human form. Like he took every single scenario of the entity and created every possibility, and he was basically the messenger. And uh, it's okay. It's it's alright. Maybe I need an exposition for that. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I think his character was okay. We'll probably get to know way more about him in the next movie. Probably way more backstory. All I, all we were told in this movie was he's a ghost from Ethan's past. He's come to haunt him. And now he's taking orders by this entity, by this AI. And the other person I want to talk about was Rebecca Ferguson. He was kind of sidelined in this movie, um, because now the shining light is on Haley Atwell. Re- Rebecca Ferguson was there since Rogue Nation, incredible, beautiful as ever, and yeah, her character was a little bit shunned, even though she did a great job in this movie, incredible job, but there could be a lot done with her. Um, we're going into spoilers here. They they killed her off because there was the entity said there's a possibility it could be either Haley Owl's character or Rebecca Ferguson's character. And sadly Rebecca Ferguson's character bit the dust. And I was like, Oh Okay And that's that's about it. Um, sadly. Um, but that gave us Hayley Atwell as new leading lady. But she was the only time Ethan was happy. Now she's gone. I think it was supposed to, you know, raise the stakes. But the exposition um, made go, ah, yeah, she's dying. Sadly. And also the last part, this is, again, a nitpick. It left me underwhelmed. Um, even if it were just a film on its own, it's okay, it's ending, like the whole train sequence is incredible, but the whole final bit of we hear a voiceover Kittredge, uh, Kittredge and having Ethan, uh, paragl- no, um, parachute down, I forgot the actual terminology. But parachute down, 
and it finishing with Isamuels and Gabriel driving off somewhere without the key. They have both sides of the key, so him and Benji are off to find the ship which is crash landed somewhere um, and trying to destroy the entity. I don't know, I just felt a little, un yeah, underwhelmed. It didn't feel rewarded and I went, oh it's part two, but yeah, that sh I saw that and went, oh okay, okay, yeah, I, I completely forgot it's part two. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's the most underwhelming of the two two parters that come out this year and then this movie is like oh I think God is a part two because it feels like oh okay from this point onwards the rest of the movie continues okay so those are just my only gripes now my final reading of the film it's still a nine it's a nine out of ten uh, I would highly recommend this movie for anyone uh, go watch an IMAX just before oh no um yes yes go watch it um in imax just before barbenheimer uh, sorry oppenheimer comes out um and takes over the box office and takes over every imax sequence uh every imax and screening go watch mission impossible day of reckoning part one now on to the tv bros segments warrior season three episode four all right season four oh, see sorry sorry season three episode four of warrior came out on monday the 10th of july Wow, what a season has been so far. This episode had everything from how the last three episodes have been building up to the events that happen in this episode itself and the repercussions that could have into what happens with it by the end of the season, if not the series itself, and where it could be drastically changed. <sighs> Young Jun gets caught in this episode. The police raid the Hopway because of counterfeit money and it's all leading towards the Hopway. Young Jun being obviously the top of the tongue of the Hopway, taking over from Father Jun, his father. He's being a little sporadic this season there's there's tension especially from the end of episode 10 season 2 where he sees Hassan and his mural on the wall and spits on the ground I think there's a whole blood 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 okay bad blood between both and the fact that Hassan is kind of pushing Youngjun Youngjun what the hell are you doing um if you're just gonna wave this money around, you gotta be discreet. But, you know, stuff like that. And I'm just like, don't ever talk to me like that again. I'm your, I'm your bloody boss. But <sighs> there's this tension that's always gonna be there between these two. And I'm not liking where it's going. But, yeah, the, the police raid the hallway, headquarters, the Tong. And. Young Joan disrespects a police officer who's clearly a fucking racist. And Bill, <laughs> Big Bill, um, the man that went from 9Ls, if he went 10Ls, he would be dead. All 9Ls went away because he didn't get the, the sergeant boss. And I felt bad for him and his family. But anyway, anyway, Bill notices that his new chief captain dickhead big forehead big nose is is way racist <laughs> and i think the reason why buckley hired him and i've i didn't talk about this 
when we were discussing season uh, season three, episode one to three, is oh maybe this new chief is part of the Confederate um, Confederate um, army that that Buckley was a part of, yeah, something like that. Maybe it comes to fruition. But yeah, um, Bill sees this. He thinks it's too much, and he still has a little. He's a little bit iffy with uh, Lee coming back but under Secret Service. So Lee technically isn't abiding by the law. Um, on top of Young Jun getting arrested. So does Mai Ling. So um, there's a subplot with Mai Ling where she tries to impress um, who uh, they call white people ducks. She tries to impress um, some women. Um, about stories about her past, how she was an empress, how she was um, coerced, right? Everything horrible things that would happen to a woman. Um, and one of the ladies really liked her, so she invited her to these precincts and everything. And then her husband tries to go on to my lane and my lane's like whoa 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 your your wife's over there I'm I'm not a whore <laughs> I ain't gonna have sex with any man but his wife who's my lane's friend sees and sees the wrong picture so when my lane goes the next day to meet her she's my lane's confronted by the police but <laughs> her friend, friend in quotations, um, got the wrong idea, the wrong end of the stick, basically. And well, I would cons- I would think Mai Ling's in prison, but not for long. So both Young Jun and Mai Ling are in the same position, but probably Young Jun's gonna get um, overworked or something. I don't know. Episode five has come out, but I have yet to see it. And I think Mai Ling will get released to something like Leong could bring her out. But slowly, Epsilon, they talk about this, the downfall of Mai Ling. But I don't think it's going to fully be the downfall of her. We will see. We will see. She'll probably get out of this the best and Young Jun could be dead or something. I don't know. We'll see. On top of episode 4 we get to see how triggering Chinatown is to Lee not only of episode 9 with the Chinatown riots from season 2 but also Lee's substance use at Artois Plaza a brothel um, uh, during season 2 and he goes back there there's actually a scene at the beginning after he talks to to the other Secret Service agent dude. Um, he looks at our toys. And then shakes his head and then walks away. And then we cut back later in the episode where he's, he's back there with substances. And I don't think he actually smoked the pipe but um, he was about to. And then stopped himself. But yeah, um, flashbacks of his time with the Chinatown squad and the reason why he left the squad along with the stupidity of Bill and the Fung Hai with Zing and everything. I can't wait to see Zing back. Uh, Dustin Young, um, Nguyen, sorry, Nguyen, um, directed episode two or three and I think he... No, he did direct episode 4. But, yeah. Lee going back to Chinatown. Um, and then finding out counterfeit money. And that's the reason why they located the Hopway as the main hub of counterfeit money in this um, area. As it's Hopway territory and it's, it's run by them. And I think Lee is going to have either major repercussions at the end of the season or I don't know it's gonna go into the next season we'll see Lee is still the goat now 
uh, we talked about this last se- uh, last episode. How would the season end? And I would think it would be Young Jun joining the Longzi. I don't know. I don't know. There's multiple ways. Maybe Young Jun shakes hand with My Ling and joins the Longzi, but uh, that's very. Uh, we'll see how episode five does. Um, and where that goes, maybe it changes his mind and goes to Myling, but I don't know. It's very, very unlikely, but yeah. Um, Assam, Yanmi, I don't think that relationship's gonna last. Um, Assam needs to be careful with someone like her because it got revealed at the end of season, uh, episode 3, that she was taking money. Um, we don't know whether it was counterfeit or she was taking money more than she was given by them, like real money. But yeah, something's gonna be big with these subplots converging. Um, and we'll probably get another bottle episode like we did with season one and season two, where it's more of a western um, style and it takes them out of San Francisco. But anyway, that was the end of Warrior Season 3, Episode 4. Incredible episode. A- another 9 out of 10 episode. And it's only going to get better. Warrior is back. It's streaming exclusively on Neon New Zealand. Now, on to the next show. That to many people have been disappointing. I love it. That's Marvel Studios Secret Invasion. Alright, Secret Invasion, episode 4 for Marvel Studios. Um, this is the best episode. This had everything. It was poetic. It was dramatic. It was chaotic. <laughs> a lot of tech. Um, incredible reveals. Some we knew. The doi. Um, but yeah. Tension's high. We're going into. Um, into kind of the middle ground. Now. Coming up to the last two episodes. Of episode 5 and 6. Um, these coming weeks. I gotta start with the big one and get out of the way. Rhodey is a skull. Uh, a skull? Yes, he has a skull. No, Rhodey is a scroll. Who <laughs> didn't see that coming? Not me. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, we don't know when he turned into a scroll or who took his body. Who's harvesting it. But, that's this is a big game changer. Because it could be after Civil War. <laughs> It's ready through the coma. <laughs> like, there could be multiple times where Rhodey has been taken over by a scroll. But I do not think he was taken over by a scroll during Falcon with the Soldier because his speech with, An- uh, with Anthony Mackie, yes, with Sam Wilson, was genuine. Like, they're brothers. Does, even though the scroll gets their memories. It was just a proper interaction between Don and, and Anthony that only they could do. Um, but the scroll, who was a female scroll, is imitating. And yeah, I, I think we joked about it last week because it was revealed at the end who Priscilla was talking to was Rhodey. Um, that. Oh. Ever since Terence Howard left, Don Cheeto came in. Is he the scroll? <laughs> that that was a big joke, and I feel like they could have lent into to those types of jokes. Kind of meta, but you know, it's it's confirmed. Rhodey James Rhodes is a scroll for now, but that's just a big thing out of the way. Anyway, I want to talk about this. It is a side plot, but it's definitely important. 
to Nick Fury's character. It's a scene, it's a sit-down scene, or any scenes with him and Priscilla. It's poetic. And it's very sad. It's all about acceptance. And it's all about love. That's why the episode's called Beloved. She wants to be called Beloved. Wants to be felt Beloved by Nick. Did she get anything and everything from her life? And that's the main question. And that carries weight towards the end of this episode. It's it's beautiful. Um, and when they quote-unquote shoot at each other and miss, they know each other very well. And Priscilla seems like Nick's... What? Who calls him Nick? Um, Fury's... Basically stone. Keeping him weighted. And... Every time they interact, it's beautiful. Again, it's poetic. And it's truly eye-opening on Nick's character. And how... He views the world both at home as a husband, a loving husband, and as Nick, Nicholas Fury Jr. Well, yeah. And, yeah. And their poem symbolizes many characters within the MCU, but definitely the scrolls. They come to this world. They want to be called Beloved. Are they called Beloved? No. They're, people are xenophobic towards them. Priscilla just wants to be loved. By her Beloved. And it grows onto Fury. And his relationship with Talos. Which we'll get to. Now. Gravik tries to start war with the Americans, tries to kill the President of the United States with the help of Scrody. I had to Scrody. Um, Rody Scroll. Um, I forgot what it was called. Um, probably Scrody. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Gravik shows off more of the Super Scroll powers. Um, he's using Groot's arm. Uh, his branches and I think it looks very neat I think it looks very cool um again Groot's animatronics uh, not animatronics Groot's CG has been in the MCU for, for nearly 10 years yeah yeah you can recreate it easily within these movies um but it's cool to see more powers like I feel like we're gonna see all four of them combined by the end of the series um i don't know where episode five and six are gonna go apart from super scroll um it's actually keeping you on your toes um i i do get why people call this show bad or it's it's just okay or it's lame because it, it, it is a complete different turn from the comics People are like, Secret Invasion? Whoa! You're telling me Iron Man is, was a scroll this entire time? You're telling me Thor was a scroll this entire time? No, people. They're bringing this massive, world-changing comic down to a spy thriller. Who can you trust? Who can you trust in the government? It was a, it's a political thriller. And it's perfectly executed. There are some times where it's jarring with its writing or its editing. But I forgive them for for how the show has been executed. It's amazing. And I think it's a great character study on Nick Fury. And who he was before the blip. And who he is now. After Spider-Man Far From Home. Along with Gravik and the Super Scroll powers. Gaia has powers, but how many? 
I think it's just extremists. So at the very end of episode 3, she got shot. And we were like, you can't just kill Amelia Clark like that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, she's, she's such a top billing actress. And it shows. Her scenes with Talos in this episode are so strong. It's so powerful. There's so much emotion on that park bench scene that you see in this episode. And how that's going to affect Gaia in the next episode with what happens to Taylor. It's it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Um, but yes, she has extremists. We see the process of her. We actually, this is actually the first time we see a process of a scroll gaining powers, like the whole powering up of the thing. Because the first time we, we saw, um, one of the super scroll powers was visually through graphic and a, a gruesome scene for the MCU using extremists great clever use of visual storytelling but this actually shows us oh this is what the machine does this is how it powers up this is where you put the vials in for different powers it's it's very cool it's very cool but along with Gaia I talked a lot about Talos gets hit multiple times in this um, episode Ben Mendelsohn I continue to say this Ben Mendelsohn's one of the best emotive characters uh, actors character actors ever he, he brings so much to every role he is in and the love he has for Taylor's and how much he puts himself in this character is is amazing but this final scene where graphic supposedly kills Taylor's and I do feel like that is the last time we see him. Because they can't just kill off these characters. Every single time. And Marie is the only one that actually dies. But Talos is fate so sad. Being an alien but protecting the president of the United States. Wow. And dying for his friend Nick Fury. And all Nick could do was just protect the president. He couldn't go back for Taylor. He couldn't go back for his best friend. There was so much tension. So much chaotic... Prowess in both Kingsley Ben-Dear, Ben Mendelsohn and Samuel Jackson's performance within that scene. Wow. Amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, I I do feel like Talos is going to bite the dust fully next episode. Um, yeah, next episode coming to Disney Plus, Wednesday 7pm, New Zealand Standard Time, episode 5. Anyway, now, on to the box office. We are starting off on the 10th of July to the 17th of July. Um, but just two weeks. Give or take. Anyway, looking at the box office from previous months, it hasn't been looking great for big blockbusters. Guardians has made over 850 mil, which is incredible. It's the highest for its franchise, and it's really good for the MCU. Then we look at films like Indiana Jones, Transformers, um, Elemental. These are bombing. But the biggest bomb this year is The Flash. Not even breaking even. Making over $200 million at the box office over a month later. Number one at the box office for its first week, Mission Impossible Day Reckoning Part 1, with its opening weekend of 56.2 million. New Zealand opening weekend of 1.5 million. Its total overall box office, 235 million. That's really good. Uh, It's doing well overseas because it opened much early. Again, 
Mission Possible Day Reckoning Part 1 opened on the 8th of July here in New Zealand. And it also started its opening weekend uh, buzz in the States on a Wednesday, which is when we usually open movies here in New Zealand. But will it make the one billion the Top Gun did? Uh, with Barbenheimer coming, probably not. It'll probably drop to number three at the box office next week. Number two at the box office is a film that has me a little skeptical because I have no clue. I know what the premise is, the trailer, it's it's a little harrowing and it's such a serious topic, but it's only released in the States. It's Sound of Freedom. The reason why I'm skeptical is because it seems like it just came out of nowhere and it's made 19.6 million on its opening weekend last week. And it's now at 85.5 million this week. Um, total box office. I don't know anything about it. I know it's based on a true story. Insidious, the Red Door, comes up at number 3 with its opening weekend of 33 million. Jumping from number 1 to number 3. New Zealand. It- is currently at 177.3 thousand dollars and total is 122.6 million in two weeks now i think this is the final installment of the insidious franchise and i have yet to see it i think i haven't seen any insidious movies after insidious 2 which is okay and number four Indiana Jones and Dollar Destiny with its opening weekend of 60.4 million. It's currently made at 1.38 million dollars here in New Zealand and it's tracked just over 300.24 uh, 302.4 million dollars in three weeks. To to me personally, I don't think that's bad. Uh, but looking at its budget, it's bad. Uh, yes. I think this could slowly go over the 400 million mark, but slowly, don't know, probably week six. But with how lackluster the reception is for this movie by many others, I think that influenced everyone's full reaction towards this movie. talked about it and I loved it I still love it I give it a name um, now at number five and this is surprising elemental opening weekend of 29.6 million uh, it's currently at 1.17 million here in New Zealand its total so far grossing is 211.7 million in five weeks this movie has crawled and successfully made it over 300 million. I think it's due to word of mouth. (laughs) This movie is doing well and I don't think it's gonna stop and it's again it's a Pixar film, it's a Disney film, kids are gonna love it. We are coming off term break and also semester break so you know who knows this movie could or would make 400 million this possibility but along with the box office it's it's clear that it's declining drastically as these like a transformers film would make money but rise of the beast just didn't have that traction as a Age of Extinction did, or a the Dark of the Moon did. Like Bumblebee didn't make as much, but that is a solo film, um, bringing Generation One, and also is a prequel to this new trilogy. Um, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, making less than expected on its both of its, both on its opening weekend and its total this week, <sighs> and then the Flash. Massive flop, massive flop for DC and 
Warner Brothers. Um, it was an, a game. You have one of the greatest superheroes and the most relatable, one of the most relatable superheroes of all time in the palm of your hands and it just shattered into a million pieces. I cannot continue stating that. I feel like this is a, a time where movies are now quantity or quality and when you get quality like your John Wicks, your Guardians, your Across the Spider-Verses, your um, Dead Reckonings, your Oppenheimer Barbies, you know, then you find the hidden gems like um, your Transformers, your stuff like that. When, when all the dust settles, then the good stuff comes out. Um, but yeah, it's it's sad seeing the box office in such a such a state. But along with box office and how Hollywood is slowly fading, the big topic right now is the WGA slash the SAG strikes that are happening right now. This is a big thing and it's massive for the future of Hollywood. Where is this going to go? Your actors are on strike. You need them. (laughs) Your writers are on strike. You need them. They are what makes these movies and television shows work so well. It's not funny. It's, It's technically not fair on anyone. These big executives... Uh, on their high horses thinking they are all high and mighty uh, with with what Bob Iger has said recently um, about um, how much money he's going to make extra with him coming back it is disgusting to see that these big Big, big bosses and higher-ups from Disney, Warner Brothers. They're making more money than they should have. On top of that, there are massive rules and regulations that come with the strike. And they affect everyone in Hollywood. It's looking at you cannot promote films at such places as San Diego Comic Con. Actually, you cannot promote films at all. Is that once the strike happens, everything shuts down. That includes promotion of films that are coming up now, such as Oppenheimer and Barbie, which got their premieres out of the way just before the strike started. And now with films like Blue Beetle, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mira Mayhem, they cannot promote anything because of these rules as they are under the SAG after. And that goes along with trailers as well. That's why there was a surplus of trailers that dropped before the strike happened with Wonka and Blue Beetle and also Ahsoka. Because they cannot promote these films anymore. And there are more that are on the decline. And it's it's a little it's a little scary for the future of Hollywood. But it's kinda needed. There needs to be kind of resurgence of hey, uh, you don't get to dictate what we do, you cannot dictate how we do it. And we need to be paid fairly, 100% fairly, if you want us to put our lives online, such as Tom Cruise or someone. When it comes to acting, I feel like they cannot be paid fairly with other people from these higher-ups. We've had this uh, like full, full um, drop of these casting news from Superman Legacy. Like, James Gunn had to release all this before the strikes happened. Because, again, it's all out, it's all under it. 
Deadpool 3 was currently under uh, production. We actually got our first look at Wolverine. Um, it looks really, really good. But yeah, um, film productions are being shut down. And that goes for stuff like Mortal Kombat, which even though filmed in Australia, they have SAG members and WGA members there. And many actors have come out and talked their piece and incredibly showcased the emotion that runs super high within these shows and within these movies behind the scenes. Support the WGA, support the SAG, because they make our entertainment come to life. Without them, we wouldn't be where we are today as the Movie Bros Podcast. Now, before we end, the massive update is something I wanted to do after the first episode reviewing The Flash. It's that of expanding the medium of the new of the Movie Bros Podcast even more exclusively on platforms such as Spotify and Amazon Prime a separate series to the podcast will be under the umbrella of the Movie Bros Podcast from Friday your host Rick Wing King will delve into the world of anime the, with massive hits such as Jujutsu Kaisen Season 2 Roroni Kenshin Bleach Thousand Year Blood War Zone 100 all releasing within the same period I'll discuss and review each episode for you guys look at that we're expanding even further I will also discuss what the best animes openings and ending and also animes itself are of the year so strap in for the anime bros podcast <sighs> well that's a massive announcement if I would say so myself but looking at the coming weeks the next episodes of Warrior and Secret Invasion are coming up as we look at the apocalypse of Barbie and Oppenheimer this week with reviews coming from episode 9 next week which, which is an insane time for film enthusiasts all around the world Anyway, we are the Movie Bros Podcast, a podcast that has been on hiatus for 4 plus years now. Since Captain Marvel's box office numbers, now on a listening platform near you. I am your host, Rick Green King, and wishing you all a happy doing, and see you all next time.